following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. As you probably might have noticed, I don't know if anyone noticed, but the title on the cover slide doesn't match your program. And it's because at around uh, almost 3 a.m. last night, I decided to split the message in two again. Uh, so if you are, have been here any length of time, you know that this is unfortunately a bad habit of mine. My, my manuscript was entering into the absurd level of like 15 pages long. And I said, you know, there's no way I'm going to be able to preach all this tomorrow. So uh, I just cut the sermon in half. And we're only going to look at verses 18 to 21 today. And so the title of it is sort of borrowed from a book by Dallas Willard. So I've entitled this message, looking at verses 18 to 21, as the divine conspiracy. The divine conspiracy. If you have your Bibles with you, we'd invite you to turn there to Luke chapter 13. Verses 18 to 21. Luke 13, verses 18 to 21. And it reads, He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. The birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes to grasp again the teachings of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to understand his wisdom, his message for us. Help us to understand just a little bit more clearly the nature of the kingdom that he proclaimed and died and resurrected to birth. And so we pray that as participants in that kingdom, our eyes would be fully open to what it means to live under your rule, under your power. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, just by way of brief review... Last week, we looked at this miracle of Jesus when he was preaching at a synagogue on the Sabbath. And he encountered this crippled woman that literally, it says, was bent over for years and years, 18 years, unable to straighten up because of an oppressive spirit. It was a spiritual illness that had come upon her. And Christ, in his mercy and love for this woman, in one single touch... One single command healed her so that she could sit upright like a a full human being for the first time in 18 years. And yet, um, the real highlight of that story was not so much the healing per se, but the reaction to it, particularly by the synagogue ruler who was utterly enabled to rejoice with the freedom and the mercy that this woman Experience. And so one of the things that we unpack in that message is how the truth is that for all of us, uh, we often operate on that mentality that life ought to be about getting what you deserve. 
You know, it ought to be about getting what you deserve, especially when you feel like you're playing by the rules, especially when you feel like you're better than other people. Then when you encounter mercy, when you encounter grace, it's not always a positive experience. In fact, you can be offended by it, angered by it, because in your heart you're thinking, you know what? Why is it that I had to play by the rules? And yet this person who doesn't, who takes shortcuts all of their life and whose life is utterly a mess, gets to go off scot-free. You know, I mean, how can we be in the same boat together? It's not fair. It's, that's not justice, God. As we saw last week, God's message was really, you know, if you want justice, if that's what you really want in life is justice, then you don't even understand what you're asking for. Because nobody would be able to stand before me if all I displayed was justice. And so the message from last week was, all of us need mercy. All of us need that grace of God that sustains us every day. What we found ultimately was that the face of Jesus was the face of God. This person who came not to place more burdens on us, but to relieve us of our burdens, to set us free from the things that cripple us and weigh us down like this disabled woman. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden Is light. And in our passage that we read this morning, it begins with the word therefore, which clearly shows that this miracle of healing is being connected now with his teaching on the kingdom of God. In essence, saying, This power that you see being displayed by me, this healing, this rest that I've come to bring my people, is connected with my teaching now on what it means to live in the kingdom of God. It says, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Jesus begins by comparing the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. Now, some of you may know from previous teachings in other messages you've heard, uh, the mustard seed was essentially the smallest seed that was used by Jews in agriculture at that time. And I don't even know, can you, reach, can you see the mustard seed in this picture? It may not even be that easy to see, but it's, it's just right there. It's like a dot. It's just a couple millimeters long. And it, Jesus, in essence, says that my kingdom is like the smallest of seeds. But although the seed itself is minuscule, tiniest among the plants, when it actually germinates and matures and grows into a plant, it actually is one of the largest plants in your garden. And in fact, most species of mustard plants uh, can grow 12, 14 feet, well above the height of a person. But there's actually another quality of mustard seeds that a lot of historians believe may be one of the reasons why Jesus used this plant, particularly to drive to describe his kingdom. There was this particular guy, Pliny the Elder, who lived around the same time as Jesus. He was a a writer and a naturalist. And this is what he wrote about mustards, the mustard plant. 
When it is sown, it is scarcely possible to get the place free of it, as the seed, when it falls, germinates at once. In other words, what Pliny the Elder said was, if you decide that you want mustard in your garden, be careful, because the stuff grows out of control, like a weed. Second you plant it, it in essence takes over your garden, and it just explodes and overrides everything else. That's the nature of the mustard seed. Now, one other interesting added detail that Jesus gives is important to note as well. He says, once it grows into this full, what Jesus actually calls a tree, he says that all of these birds now come and rest in it. And there are these repeated passages in the Old Testament describing a tree with birds landing on it. And in almost every one of those cases, it is the picture of God bringing about such a mighty work in the world that people from all nations come to rest under the protection of that tree. So the birds have a very clear imagery to the nations of the world. And he says, in essence, that this is the nature of my kingdom. In other words, the message of this parable is clear. The kingdom of God often looks insignificant and unimpressive, but it is relentlessly growing until one day it will spread throughout the whole world. And at its core, this message applied to Jesus himself. Because the truth is, that's the way everyone viewed Jesus' ministry. Is what could really come out of this? this? It was one of the hurdles that Jesus always had to deal with was he was not born into the religious elite. He was not born into the priesthood. Or he was not among the Sadducees and the ones who basically controlled the temple. He was this uneducated carpenter. No th formal theological education from the backwoods of Nazareth. And that really bothered people. It bothered them a lot, saying, why is this guy an authority figure? Who is he to tell us about God? What right does he have? John chapter 1, verse 45 to 46, when Jesus was collecting his disciples, there's this very humorous interchange with Philip and Nathaniel. And it goes like this. It says, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. You know, it's, it's kind of funny saying like, we found the one, the Messiah. And then Nathaniel goes, and where is he from? Nazareth, come on. I mean, there's no way the Messiah would come from Nazareth. It makes no sense at all. And it's interesting that Philip doesn't really defend it. He goes, yeah, I, I don't know, you know. Because why don't you just come and meet the guy and you can make your own judgment about him. And when you just look at it purely from a human standpoint, the, Christ, the, the story of Christianity is, is amazing. It's incredible. It's almost beyond belief because... In just three short years, this poor, uneducated carpenter appeared on the scene in this insignificant corner of the Roman Empire. Palestine was not where things were happening, okay? It was not. And he began to teach people what it meant to live in the kingdom of God. And then, after those three short years, 
He was crucified. And that ought to have been the end of the story, shouldn't it? That ought to have been when the story ended. In other words, Jesus should have been a forgotten footnote in the annals of history. Should have been forgotten. And yet, the exact opposite happened. After his death and resurrection, something incredible happened. His death and resurrection birthed a movement that today has more followers than any other religion on this planet, representing just about every country in this world. Okay. Utterly unbelievable, isn't it? He just says, this is starting like a mustard seed. Everyone looks at it and dismisses it. Oh, that's nothing. Just another false messiah coming to say he's going to save the world. And yet something about this man, when he died and rose again, birthed a movement that is exploding in every tribe, every nation, among every people. And as we will see in a little bit, that characteristic of the kingdom that represented Jesus and his humble beginnings seems to be what God continues to do even through us as part of that kingdom. Meaning that often the world will look at us too and say, yeah, those people are like nobodies. You know, they're insignificant. They don't really matter in the bigger scheme of things. They don't really count for much. Just a bunch of religious nuts gathering together, worshiping this Jesus all the time. And yet, the argument here is, but that's actually where the center of everything is. That's where history is moving forward. is through what appears to be insignificant people. That we saw that in the very beginning of the church in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They were offended almost saying, these are not theologically or philosophically sophisticated people. These are not the elite of society and yet look at the ruckus they're causing in Jerusalem. Look at all these people blindly following them. What is happening here? There's something crazy happening in Jerusalem as the church was exploding. And they tried to look at the people and said, we can't explain this. We can't. Look at these men. These are not the kind of men that lead a movement. These are not the people, kind of people that are capable of this kind of sophistication. The second parable is similar to the first, although it has a slightly different nuance. In verses 20 to 21, And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So the first was a mustard seed, but now Jesus talks about kneading some yeast or leaven into some dough. Similar to the parable of the mustard seed, I think, there is a parallel in that it is something incredibly small. With yeast now, we're really talking about something microscopic. Something you can't even see with the naked eye. Infiltrating into something larger and having an enormous impact on it. In fact, that quantity of dough that Jesus used, we don't really know what it is because all it says is three measures. And we're like, I don't even know what a measure is, but it's three of them. Well, What he actually is saying is 
50 pounds of dough, okay? He's using an, an, a ridiculous amount of dough. Nobody bakes with 50 pounds of dough, okay? I mean, can you just imagine the size of bread, the, the, the loaf of bread that you could bake with that? But the reason why Jesus uses such a ridiculously large size is to talk about that impact that his kingdom is having globally. But even so, the focus of the second par- uh, parable, I would argue, is not so much on the extensive nature but on the subversive nature of the kingdom, the secret nature of the kingdom. That's why Jesus uses this word hidden to describe the yeast. It's hidden in the flower, and it can't be seen. You don't even detect it, but invisibly, under the radar, it is having a profound impact on the rest of the world. Now, what I want to argue to you is most global movements that really have an impact worldwide are very obvious to everyone. I mean, it's just, that's the way it has to be. You know, if you sort of think about the impact of Adolf Hitler in Europe and then eventually the entire world, I mean, that Third Reich left an indelible footprint in our history and in our world. The same thing with Chairman Mao's communist revolution in China. There was no doubt in anybody's mind when that revolution took place in China. And even in our day, we see that same impact of a movement through the Arab Spring. I mean, these are not subtle movements, are they? These are not subtle revolutions. They're very obvious for everyone to see. Even on a more popular culture basis, we see things like Twitter and Facebook and social media dramatically changing the face of the global culture. Even, as many people say, being the mechanism behind revolutions, like in places like Egypt and Iran. So when we talk about global movements, I mean, these are very powerful, obvious things in our world that leave an indelible imprint on history. But Jesus says, my movement is just as impactful, just as great, but there's a subtlety to it. There's a secrecy to it. There's almost a a subversive nature to it that is unlike any other movement that has happened in human history. Because what Jesus said is that my revolution is rooted in the radical transformation of the human heart. Of the human heart. And in this sense, it doesn't always garner the attention that other revolutions do because it is not a political movement. It is not a military revolution. It's not even a cultural phenomenon. Jesus says, mine is nothing less than the changing of the human heart. And Jesus says, when you see that happening... It doesn't always look so impressive. The guy shows up to work the next day. He looks like the same guy. I don't know. Did a revolution really take place? I can't tell. But Jesus says, you have no idea what the power of my revolution can do in this world. Philip Ryken says, the life-giving work of the gospel is often unseen. Yet little by little, the kingdom is growing. 
It grows behind closed doors when a sinner kneels secretly in prayer to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. It grows in the home when by faith a husband takes spiritual responsibility for his household. It grows behind bars when prisoners hear the gospel. It grows on the streets of the city when Christians show quiet mercy to people society has forgotten. It grows in all the lost places of the world where missionaries live out their faith and daily obedience to Christ. The real work of the kingdom of God and of the church in the world is not always obvious, but sometimes invisible and almost imperceptible, like the yeast hidden in a loaf of bread. Because you don't always see it. It doesn't look so flashy. It's not so dramatic. And yet when that revolution happens in a person's life, it's amazing the world change that can even arise out of it. Dallas Willard puts it like this. The divine conspiracy of which I am a part stands over human history in the form of a cross. The divine conspiracy of which I am a part stands over human history in the form of a cross. In other words, Willard is calling the kingdom of God a divine conspiracy like an underground movement. It's like these sleeper cells that we hear about with Al-Qaeda, right? Isn't that terrifying? Think about some people are plotting destruction right now but could be living in your subdivision, getting ready to do the next horrific act in a shopping mall near you, you know? I mean, but in a way, this is the way Jesus is describing his own kingdom, It is secretly but unrelentingly transforming the world by transforming human hearts. And although it may not look like much and cannot even be detected at all, the influence can be profound. This was powerfully illustrated through the life of Martin Luther King Jr. Many of you may have gone to see that recent movie, Selma, that powerfully demonstrated that. It's interesting to me that the civil rights movement and the horrible history of slavery into the Jim Crow South was broken through a pastor who was following the teachings of Jesus Christ. It was through someone like that that our own society was transformed so radically. And so this is something that we have to understand is that it's not about politics or the military or even culture or social media. These are not the things that actually fix our world. It's the human heart. This this is something that Jesus was unrelenting about and we've been seeing it as we've been marching through the Gospel of Luke. Is that whatever there is out there, the crime, the theft, the, the rape, the murder, the wars, famines, and on and on. All of these horrible tragedies that have marked human history. At the root of it all is the brokenness of the human heart. And that is what Jesus came to repair, to restore, to redeem. So that is where the revolution begins. Every broken family, every divorce, every case of child abuse. It's not about putting the social structures in to have a safety net to catch the kids. Those things are a part of the solution. But those will mean nothing if the human heart is not changed and transformed by the power of God. Well, let me just offer you a few practical applications to this teaching 
of the kingdom of God. The first is this. Don't be discouraged when you don't see immediate fruit from the things that you are doing for God. Because I think it is precisely the nature of this kingdom as hidden yeast that at times can be so frustrating to be a Christian. Because sometimes it feels like you're actually on the losing team, doesn't it? I mean, is anything that I do really going to make a difference? Sometimes it feels like God is so weak. Why doesn't he show himself more powerfully? Why does he always have to be so hidden? Why does he have to act so subtly? Why can't he just come in thunder and lightning and fix everything in power? Why doesn't he show himself more clearly? You know, um, it's kind of interesting. I was uh, speaking at an outside engagement once. uh, And after speaking, um, got into some conversation with some people who had come out for the event. And there was a guy who was there who came out to the event, but he was not yet a Christian at that point in time. He wasn't a believer. And so we were just talking about my message and stuff. And then somehow we got into talking about our lives. And, um, you know, he, I, he, I eventually told him that I was a medical doctor, went to medical school, had practiced for some time, but had given up my medical practice in order to be a pastor now. And... Um, When I told that to him, his reaction was something I did not expect at all. Uh, He became really kind of offended and almost angry at me when he heard that. Uh, Because most people actually find it kind of noble. Going, Oh, yeah, you gave up being a doctor? Really? Wow. How noble of you, you know? Um, But this guy reacted in the exact opposite way. He became indignant. And what he said to me was, like, he said basically something like this. It's not his exact words. But he said basically something. He said, you mean that you went all the way through medical school and you got through residency, did a medical training, and now you are capable of saving people's lives, but you have chosen not to do it so you could go around to places like this and give speeches? (laughs) That's what he said. He was like, he was upset because in his calculation, my decision to leave medicine to be a pastor of a church was an irresponsible one. It was a ridiculous one. Because in his eyes, a doctor has real value to society, right? Because you can save people's lives. You can help them physically. And his, I think in truth, what he, he didn't really actually say, because, but what does a pastor do, you know? You give speeches. You go around and talk about this Bible all the time. Um, and you know, I have to be honest with you. That conversation kind of rattled me for a few days really shook me going like, oh my gosh, did I make a bad decision? You know, like, going like could, I, could I be a better help to society if I maintain my job as a doctor? Um, and then it, it made me question, what difference am I really making as a pastor? You know, like, so I spent hours and hours preparing these speeches, you know. Ta-da, there you go. Have a good week. See you back next week and I'll get another one ready for you, you know. It's sort of this question like, what difference does this really make? What difference does it make? Because I'll be honest with you, sometimes even as a pastor, you really struggle and wonder, am I really making a difference in this world? You know, maybe some of you have felt that same way. Maybe you've wondered at times, does my faithfulness to God make any difference at all? Maybe for some of you, you've left your career so that you could raise your children and disciple them 
in the Lord. And some days, you really don't know if it was worth it. You know? Like, what have I done with my life? What have I become? What will be on my tombstone when I die? That I changed a lot of diapers and wiped a lot of snot off of kids' noses? Maybe it feels like the only impact that all of your efforts at witnessing at work are having is to be basically labeled as the religious nut in the office. No one is coming to Christ. No one is being saved through your efforts to witness. And I think precisely because so much of the Christian experience can feel like this. Does it really matter? Am I making any difference at all in any of this? That I think Jesus gives us these two parables. These two parables ought to encourage every believer when they're having struggles like this. Don't be discouraged when you don't see the immediate fruit or any fruit at all, frankly, of the work you're doing. Keep being faithful because God is at work, which often looks very unimpressive, even, frankly, if we're honest, to his followers like us. doesn't always look very impressive or noticeable. And that's why closely related to that first application is the second one. Don't be too quick to judge the impact that you're making. Don't be too quick to judge the impact that you're making. Because often God is at work in unrecognizable ways that you cannot always see. I think the truth is this, is we have this restlessness inside every one of us. We want to be history makers. We want to know that when we breathe our last breath, that our life amounted to something, that my life mattered, that I did something important in my generation. But the problem is, I think we often attach that to doing something very dramatic and high-powered. You know, it's like those people who left it all to go to Africa and start an AIDS orphanage, right? Those are the ones, or these martyrs in the Middle East, like that we just saw in Egypt, you know, who are are dying for their faith. And that's how you make a real difference in the world. But I'm just living this quiet suburban life in the Chicagoland area, and I don't really see much significance in my life. I would challenge you, if you have that kind of mentality, to read through the Bible again. And I want you to pay attention to the fact that some of the key moments in redemptive history Some of those watershed turning points in history, when you break it down to the actual action that was responsible for that key moment, wasn't actually very impressive at all. Wasn't very dramatic. It was, in fact, very pedestrian. You know, if you just think about Abraham, this great patriarch, the father of the faith, Abraham. Break it down to, let me press the issue. What exactly did Abraham do that was so great and world-changing and earth-shattering? He just had the courage to leave his home. That's about it. He left his mommy and daddy and went into the desert. I mean, he didn't build any great city. He didn't start any political movement. He didn't do any of that. All he did was leave home. But God used that act of faith to do something amazing through him. Think about Joseph. Okay, if you think about Joseph, now he actually had a very dramatic story. He got kidnapped, sold into slavery by his brothers who were jealous of him, ended up in Egypt. And the thing about it is he did some great things, didn't he? He ended up creating this whole administrative system that saved Egypt from a famine. 
and became second in command only to the Pharaoh. But here is the thing. Joseph is not remembered for any of that. That's not why he's remembered in history. And that's not even why he's important in history. Was he saved a generation of Egyptians from famine. Why he is important, why he counts in the bigger scheme of things, is because he forgave his brothers and sheltered them. That's it. That's it. Because he forgave his brothers and sheltered them, through those tribes, they would go on eventually to give rise to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, through one of his brothers, Judah. It's interesting, right? It wasn't through Joseph that the Messiah came, right? It was actually through Judah, whom Joseph saved, that God did one of his greatest acts of sending Jesus Christ. If you sort of think about the great women in the Bible, like Ruth, what did Ruth do to make her part of the lineage of Jesus Christ and King David himself? All she did was love her mother-in-law. Some of you say, that's a lot, man. That's really a lot. That's, that's heroic. It may be heroic. Uh, but, but in a way, that's all she did was love her foreign mother-in-law. Right? That's it. Now, if you just sort of break it down, like, what's the big deal about that? That's like nothing. Anyone can do that. And yet God used that act of love in a couple more generations to bring about King David. Think about Joseph, Jesus' father. What did he do that was so great to go into the annals of history as a history maker? The only thing he did was not divorce his wife that he suspected of being unfaithful to him. That's all he did. In fact, he kind of disappeared from the Gospels after that. He played his role. You did not divorce your wife. Good job, man. You did it. You served your purpose in your generation because you did not divorce your wife. You see, if you sort of break down these great moments of redemption in the Bible, they aren't really very spectacular at all. They're not amazing. It's just people living their daily lives responsive to God and what he is asking of them. And out of these small acts of faithfulness, which in the eyes of the world don't seem like anything, God is saying, I am doing something unbelievable. And the thing is, when we look in retrospect at history, we can look at all that, oh, that's amazing, you know? But in our hearts, we're like, but I'm not an Abraham. I'm not a Ruth. I'm, I'm not a Joseph. But the question is, how do you know that? How do you know that God doesn't want to use your small acts of faithfulness? You see, because you cannot engineer that. You cannot make something great because you decide to make something great. That's up to God. You got to just leave that into God's hands. By your just loving your family and being faithful and being a man or woman of integrity, God is saying, You have no idea how I could multiply that and do some unbelievable things through that. And then, lastly, is this learn to embrace your weaknesses. Learn to embrace your weaknesses. The truth is, All of us want to operate from a position of strength, don't we? But it's, in fact, often our very weaknesses that we try to hide from others and even hide from God that God is going to use for his greatest works in our lives. The Apostle Paul discovered this truth in his own life in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 to 10, when it says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. 
For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am small. You know, I think a lot of us write ourselves out of being used by God. We automatically disqualify ourselves because we know we've got issues. We've got a lot of baggage. There's a lot of rough edges. And saying, I don't see how God could use a person like me. I've got to clean my act up. I've got to get myself usable and do all this, and then he's going to be able to do something. But often what God is saying is, even in that messiness of your life, I can use you. Are you willing to trust me and surrender your life to me in whatever I want to do through you? I want to just close with this, and we'll finish here. The book of Daniel in chapter 2, there's this interesting story of King Nebuchadnezzar, who is pretty much the ruler of the known world at the time because the Babylonian Empire was so vast. And he ends up having this series of dreams, but, and they're, they're really disturbing him problem is he can't quite remember what they are. And so he wakes up and he's just torn inside, but he can't figure out what the dream was about. So he gathers all his sorcerers, magicians, wise men, and he says, guys, I, I'm, I'm falling apart here. Tell me what I dreamt and then tell me the interpretation. Otherwise, I'm going to cut you to pieces. <laughs> that's, that's what the king's able to do, right? So otherwise, I don't know why, I'm pay- why you guys are all on my payroll, but you know, he's like, if I tell you the dream, then, you know, you guys always have an interpretation for me. That's easy, right? Well, just, and so that's what, the, that's what these magicians do. They say, you know, it reveals their, that they're fakes, they're phonies. They say, King, no one can do that. So just tell us the dream. Just piece together as much of the dream as you can remember, and we'll give you the interpretation. And the king is like, no, it's not going to work that way this time. You tell me the dream I had if you're for real. You tell me my dream, and then you tell me what the interpretation is. And they come back and say, just tell us the dream, king, and we'll give you the interpretation. And he goes, you guys are just trying to buy time. I figured it out. You guys are trying to buy time. And then he just says, forget this. You guys are all phonies. He starts gathering them all together to cut them to pieces now. And included in that interesting is Daniel. Because apparently he got a reputation of being one of these kind of prophets or men who can talk on behalf of God. Well, Daniel comes and he shows he's the real deal. And he says, you know, king, don't kill everyone. Put the soldiers away. I'll tell you what your dream was, and I'll tell you the interpretation. And in Daniel's conversation with King Nebuchadnezzar, he actually tells him a powerful picture of the coming kingdom of God. Daniel chapter 2, verse 31 to 35. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance, The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a human mountain and filled the whole earth. That rock 
is a picture of the kingdom of God. Interpreting the dream, Daniel tells the king in verses 44 to 45. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. This is an awesome picture of the kingdom of God that you and I are a part of. The world sort of looks and says, this is where the action is happening. And God says, no, if you really want to see where the action is, look at my church. Look at my people. Because in my people, I am building a kingdom that is going to cover the entire world with my glory. I just want to close with this brief video that I'm sure many of you may have seen because it kind of went viral among Christian circles for a little bit. But it's just um, a song that was performed during the White Flag Passion Concert a few years back, uh, which, in which they sing, How Great Is Our God, uh, bringing people from all different nations together in composing that song. And I think I just want to show it to you to give us a visual picture of this kingdom that Jesus is describing, this kingdom that Daniel is describing, and then we'll close in some response. Mm-hmm. 